Thank you so much, Julie, for leading us this morning. We appreciate your ministry to us as we have worshiped the Lord today in song and in special words about what the Lord means to us. It's such a delight to see all of you today and welcome our friends who are on live stream this morning. May the Lord especially minister to our hearts as we gather around the Lord's table just a little bit later this morning. Uh, I read about some American soldiers who were on a troop ship and they uh, gathered around their chaplain and they asked him a very unusual question. They said to this chaplain, do you believe in hell? And he responded, I do not. Then they had an even more unusual request. They said, well, then would you please resign? They said, if there is no hell, we do not need you. And if there is a hell, we do not wish to be led astray. Now, those soldiers were very astute, weren't they? They were obviously Christian soldiers, and they were very astute. You see, if there is no hell, then there's really no need for us to be here, is there? Church is not very, very serious. But if there is a hell... This is very serious, very serious, and we do not want a pastor who will lead us astray, do we? We don't. And that's exactly where Psalm 1 ends. Uh, as you know, we have been looking together at the two roads of Psalm 1. And I want to remind you that Psalm 1 is actually the gateway to all 150 psalms, the themes in Psalm 1 are found over and over again throughout the Psalms. And we have seen that uh, Psalm 1 teaches us there are only two ways. There are only two influences. There are only two outcomes in life. And now as we come to the end of the Psalm, we discover there are only two destinies. And this morning, I want you to take your Bibles again with me and turn to Psalm 1. And I want us to see the teaching as the psalm ends on the two destinies that face every person who is here in our sanctuary and on live stream this morning. And let's draw out the teaching of what the Bible says about these two destinies. Notice verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 1. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, this morning, as we draw out the teaching about eternal destinies, there are four parts to the teaching, and I want to draw them out one by one. So let's look at the first one. First of all, temporal perishing warns of eternal perishing. Temporal perishing in this life warns of eternal perishing. Now, if you are like me, when you read the wicked will perish here in verse 6, you may instinctively connect this with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we assume that the perish year is eternal perishing, what we would call eternal hell. 
But Hebrew words have a, uh, a range of meaning. And it's uh, the same with this word perish. The word perish can mean temporal perishing now in this life, as well as eternal perishing. In fact, I have professors who are on both sides of the meaning of the word here in verse 6, and it's actually possible that we should include both meanings. Psalm 9, I invite you to turn to for just a moment because it uses the word perish in both senses. Now I'm going to read verses 3 through 6 for you. And you're going to hear the word perish three times and you're going to see that it clearly is used in these two different senses in the very same psalm. So let me read for you starting at Psalm 9 verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Now clearly in verse 3 it means temporal perishing in this life. David's enemies in battle against him stumbled and they perished. But in verse 5 it includes both meanings. The nations were rebuked in battle but they are blotted out forever and ever. And then verse 6 means temporal perishing as the cities are rooted out but there is an everlasting emphasis. Now putting all of this together then, what do we see? This is what we see, temporal perishing in this life warns of eternal perishing. Jesus taught this very thing in Luke chapter 13, and I want you to take your Bibles there because he uses the very word from Psalm 1 in verses 1 through 5. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke 13, verses 1 to 5, and notice how Jesus reflects the teaching of the Psalms. Listen to his words. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus saying? People who die prematurely are not necessarily greater sinners than anyone else. They're warnings to us. Jesus uses the word perish from Psalm 1 twice here, and he is clearly teaching us that temporal perishing in this life warns all of us of eternal perishing. 
Many years ago, I was in a class entitled Old Testament Ethics. Our teacher was the renowned Old Testament scholar, Walt Kaiser. He said something I had never heard before, but I know it comes from scripture. He said this, natural disasters are God speaking to a nation, warning of judgment to come. The Far East tsunami was a warning to Japan. Hurricane Katrina was a warning to America. Death is coming, eternity awaits, there are only two destinies, heaven or hell. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Now here's the second part of this teaching that comes from Psalm 1. Part number two is this, eternal perishing is a deserved condition. Eternal perishing is a, con a deserved condition. You see, one of the objections to endless punishment is that it is inconsistent with a loving God. People conceive of God as a God of love, therefore he could not consign people to endless punishment. I want you to think, which famous figure made the comments I am now going to read for you? Think in your mind if you know who this might be. Here's what he said. I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends will be everlastingly punished, and this is a damnable doctrine. Charles Darwin wrote that. The father of evolution and it was one reason why he rejected his Christian faith and became an agnostic. Now, how does Psalm 1 answer this objection? Well, Psalm 1 tells us this. The reason people think that way is they have a low view of God and a low view of sin. When people say hell is unfair, they do not see the holiness of God or the sinfulness of sin. Uh, the word wicked here in verse 6, it occurs four times in the psalm, and it refers to those who have rejected their creator, no matter how benign that rejection may seem. The word sinners in verse 5 is found twice in the psalm, and it means to willfully, to deliberately set aside God's commands. And then we saw the word scoffers in verse 1, and that's a reference to those who mock the truth of God. Now notice what verse 5 says about these. It says they will not stand in the judgment. That's a court scene, isn't it? What does a judge say at the end of a trial? He says, will the defendant please stand? And then the judge delivers the verdict. And here, God's verdict with all non-believers is very clear. They are guilty. 
The text says they cannot stand uncondemned in the judgment. You see, what people view as unfair, God in his perfect holiness views as deserved. A man who thought a great deal about these matters was Pastor Jonathan Edwards. He was greatly used of the Lord in the Great Awakening in the 1700s. And I want you to listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. He who commits any one sin has guilt and ill deserts so great that the value and merit of all the good which it is possible to do in this whole life is as nothing compared to it. Think of that. If we could put all the good that we have ever done on one side, and one sin, however small that sin is, the guilt of that one sin would outweigh all the merit of a lifetime of doing good. Pastor Edwards also wrote this, God can never require imperfect obedience or by his holy law allow us to be guilty of any one sin, however small. You see, if God were to condone even one sin, he would no longer be God. And therefore, Eternal perishing is deserved for all non-believers. Here's the third part of this teaching that comes out of Psalm 1. Eternal perishing is primarily separation and exclusion. Eternal perishing is primarily separation and exclusion. Perhaps you're like me today and you've heard graphic sermons on hell going into graphic details about the physical details of hell. And I want to say this morning, we must be very careful not to do that because none of us knows what hell is really like. It's very clear that some physical details in the Bible are figurative to describe a place of anguish. And we must never take figures of speech and force those figures to walk on all fours. The real emphasis in the Bible about hell is that it is a place of spiritual anguish, separation, and exclusion. We see that right here because he says the wicked will not stand sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The congregation of the righteous is a reference to the people of God who experience eternal and total blessedness with the Lord. And I want you to notice that this is the consequence and the essence of the judgment in line one, because line one says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And then if we say, well, what is that judgment? Well, the next line explains it. It is not to be in the congregation of the righteousness, of the righteous. Brothers and sisters, this is the awfulness of eternal perishing. It is missing belonging 
to the people of God. Don't we see this in the New Testament with the rich man and Lazarus? In Luke 16, don't we? The Bible says Lazarus died and he went to paradise where he was there with Abraham. And the reason he was there is Lazarus was a member of the covenant people and Abraham is the father of the covenant people. So Lazarus went to paradise and the Bible says in verse 25, he was comforted. Comforted because he was in heaven and comforted because he was with the people of God who are blessed in that place. But verse 25 also says the rich man was in anguish alone in hell. And we read of no other person that was with him as Abraham was with Lazarus. And then listen to these words of Abraham in verse 26. Listen to these words. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from you to us. That is the essence of what hell is. The English pastor Walter Matthews said this, the essence of hell is complete separation from God, and that is the ultimate disaster. If God is the greatest good, and we've just been singing that he is, what then is the ultimate disaster? It is to be separated and excluded from him for all eternity. That's hell. That's hell. There was a Hollywood actor by the name of Hugh Pryor. He committed a murder-suicide. He murdered his wife one day, and the next day he shot himself near Las Vegas. Before he killed himself, he left a note. And in the note was this statement. Tell my friends... I'll meet them in hell. What a terribly sad delusion. What a horrible misunderstanding. There is no friendship in hell. It is a place of eternal separation and exclusion from God and his people. And it lasts forever. Now the fourth part here in Psalm 1 of what it teaches about eternal destiny is one of the greatest Old Testament statements you could ever find on what eternal life is 
and why those who have it are secure not only now, but forever. And let me put the teaching in the form of this fourth statement. Here it is. Eternal life is a living relationship with God that he protects now and forever. Eternal life is a living relationship with God that he protects not only forever, but he protects now. Verse 6 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Two things here. Number one, eternal life is a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The word knows is found throughout the Old Testament as an intimate relationship. It is a knowledge that saves us and brings us into relationship with God. And the verse tells us that this saving relationship through Christ, it leads to a new way. It leads to a righteous way. We must never limit or define eternal life only as going to heaven. That is a part of eternal life, but it is not the essence of eternal life. Eternal life is living a new life with God, and it begins now when, by faith and repentance, we come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus is referring to this very same thing when he says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Who is the Lord here of Psalm 1? It's Jesus, isn't it? This beautifully dovetails with what he says in John 10. Eternal life is a relationship with the Savior that is described as hearing him, knowing him, and following him. Let me ask you this morning, do you have that life? Have you repented of your sins, any one of which is deserving of eternal perishing? Have you recognized what Christ has done for you? Have you trusted him? Are you now in a relationship with him and you say, I know I'm in this relationship because I hear his voice in his word. I know him. And I follow him. That's what eternal life is. And then I want you to notice the second part of this. God protects those who have this life now and forever. God protects those who have this life now and forever. When it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the word knows there can also mean to watch over, to protect, to guard. 
If you have the New International Version this morning, it says that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Another translation says that the righteous are guided and protected by the Lord. A shepherd does far more than watch, doesn't he? A shepherd guides. A shepherd protects. And Jesus in John 10 went on to say that very thing. Listen to what he said. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that how Psalm 23 ends? It's the same teaching in Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. That's the destiny of the saved. Despite our failures, God saves us. He knows us. He keeps us following him. And he will bring us safely home. I'm sure you know that Ted Turner, who founded CNN, has said many shocking things. One day, he was at a church luncheon to apologize for one of the shocking things he had said. And in his remarks at the church luncheon, this is what he said. He said, I'm looking forward to dying and going to hell because that's where I'm headed. Here's what I hope everyone here today can say. I hope everyone here today can say, I'm looking forward to dying and going to heaven. Because that's where I'm headed. And if you have the eternal life that Jesus promised, Psalm 1 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And he will protect and guide you now and take you safely home to be with him. Let's bow together and thank him, shall we? As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and no one is looking around, you may not realize that every Sunday when a pastor stands in the pulpit, he carries a big burden because he knows everyone who is sitting before him will spend eternity in one of two places. And the burden that that pastor carries is he does not want to lead anyone astray.
And this morning, though this is a hard teaching, it is the teaching of the Word of God. And if you're here today and you are uncertain about where you stand, you can turn to Jesus now. You can confess your need of him. You can admit your sinfulness and unworthiness. You can throw yourself at the foot of the cross. And you can call upon Jesus to save you in mercy. And he has said, he that comes to me. I will in no wise cast out. Come to him today. And if you have questions about anything that you have heard today, we're here to help you. We're just beggars who have found bread and can help other beggars find the bread of life as well. And so however we can help you, that's our desire. Lord Jesus, thank you that the day of grace continues. Thank you that the mercy of the Lord is offered to all who receive it. Thank you, Father, that what we are doing is indeed very, very serious. And we thank you that you have provided a way whereby as Lazarus was comforted in the eternal presence of the Lord and his people in paradise, so we can experience the very same. I pray that you would draw men and women, boys and girls, young people, to yourself. How we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.